On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, it's a great honor to be here. I've been looking forward to uh, being with you very, very much. And it's interesting, uh, before I jump into the Bible, the, uh, the nation has a great need, particularly for fathers and the fatherhood of God. Uh, for the first time in the nation's history, the majority of children born to women 30 years of age and younger, those children are born out of wedlock. And uh, 40% of kids tonight go to bed without a father. And a lot of you uh, single moms are, are carrying a double responsibility and a burden and a load. And when God chose to reveal himself to us, he could have chosen any one of a number of images and he chose father. And he fills that role of father and he claims that he is even a father to the fatherless. And what he does is he also raises up spiritual fathers, men who have the father's heart and wanna see people born again through Jesus Christ, wanna see them grow up and, and raised in the things of the Lord and help them to be nourished and to flourish in the goodness of God. Uh, the apostle Paul was a man like that. He tells the Corinthians in the letter that he wrote to them, he says, you have a lot of teachers a lot of people that'll give you a class or a podcast or a book or a blog, but you don't have many fathers. And then he says, I became a father to you through the preaching of the gospel. And he calls Timothy, Titus, Onesimus, his sons. And we talk of Abraham as our father and we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, fathers and sons and generations. And so it's a great honor and a joy to be here because I believe part of the ministry and the mantle that God has given to Trinity Fellowship is one of spiritual fatherhood through uh, Pastor Jimmy Evans. And it's a great honor and joy to be here and to observe and to learn. And I know this is a very big week for your church as uh, Pastor Jimmy Witcher is assuming more leadership responsibility and, and that transition from spiritual father to son is underway. So I'm gonna stick around tomorrow and I'm gonna be here to, to learn and to observe and to celebrate and to honor with you all. And I wanted to personally, on behalf of many other pastors and churches, thank the elders of this church and to thank the people of this church for sharing your leadership so that that fatherly deposit could be made in many, including myself. And there are many that are very, very grateful for your willingness to share your spiritual father and for the spiritual fathers in this house to share that man and those men with us. So we love you. It's a great honor to be with you. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, pray. And if you've got a Bible, find uh, Revelation chapter four. And if you don't know your Bible well, just keep going to the right. You'll get there eventually. Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to preach and to teach God's word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that for a moment, we would not check our phones, we would not be distracted, that we wouldn't be worried about our social media accounts or what people are saying about us or thinking about us, that we would not be distracted by the tasks and duties and responsibilities that are upon us this evening or will come upon us tomorrow. Holy Spirit, would you please give us a moment to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
And Lord Jesus, might we see you right now having completed your redemptive work seated on a throne. May this be a meeting for us individually and collectively with you. May we take our eyes off of ourselves. May we take our eyes off of our circumstances and may we lift our eyes up to see our Savior in whose name we pray, amen. Well, friends, we were made for glory. I don't know if you know this, you were made for glory. This is why we spend so much time, energy, and attention to go places that are glorious. This is why some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. You spent much time, energy, and money to be in the presence of something more grand, more great, more glorious, to stand in awe, to feel exceedingly small, to realize that in the grand scheme of things, you're very minor. This is why some of you jump perhaps in your truck and go out away from the city where there are no lights and just gaze up at the greatness of the evening sky. And as you look at all that God made, you realize how great and grand and glorious God is and how small you are. And it feels good and it feels right. This is why some of you will venture all the way to the ocean just so you can put your feet in the water and stand in the midst of something that is so powerful and so strong and so large and feel so small and so weak and so insignificant. And in those moments, the soul sings because we were made for glory. We were made for greatness. We were made for grandeur because we were made for God. And ultimately that longing, that thirst, that hunger to stand in the presence of glory, it is not satisfied until we're in the presence of Jesus. And in one of the greatest Old Testament stories in Isaiah chapter six, 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was even born of the Virgin Mary and entered into human history, Isaiah has this amazing, unparalleled experience. It says that he was living his life as we do and suddenly his faith became sight and heaven opened up and who did he see? He saw the Lord Jesus, high and exalted, seated on a what? Seated on a what? Seated on a throne. And it says that angels surrounded him and they sang to him and they cried out in unison, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are filled with his glory. And Isaiah was undone. He was convicted of his own sin and his unworthiness to be in the presence of the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of the one who sat on the throne alone. 700 years later, another man would comment on this encounter. His name was John. In John chapter 12, verse 41, he says that Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. We live in this physical world, behind it is this spiritual world. We live in this world of things that we see, behind it is a world that we don't see. And that is the world in which God rules and God reigns, where God is enthroned and where God is worshiped and where God is glorified. And one day, like Jesus taught us to pray, that king and kingdom will come to the earth and our faith will be sight and we will see the Lord Jesus in all of his grandness and glory as Isaiah did. 
Until that time, we lean into the scriptures and we trust the the revelation and the experiences that are given to us from both Isaiah and John. How did John know that it was Jesus whom Isaiah saw high and exalted seated on the throne? Well, he himself had a very similar experience. He records it for us in Revelation chapter four, verses one and two. And there we find that Jesus alone sits on the throne. He says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. What an amazing experience. The curtain's going to be pulled back. And just as Isaiah did, John did get to gaze upon the glory of God. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the spirit, the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit, he alone is the one who enables us to come into the presence of such a holy and great God. And behold, what was there? A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. I want you to see this imagery and I want it to sink deep in your heart. The Bible speaks frequently of thrones and oftentimes it refers to God's rule. The Bible speaks of a throne 196 times, 136 times in the Old Testament, It speaks of the throne 61 times in the New Testament, 45 times just in this book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. 14 of the 22 chapters in Revelation speak of the throne. And in some regards, you could break all of Revelation down into heavenly scenes where there is glory and majesty and worship and love and adoration and forgiveness and peace and then the earthly scenes of chaos and war and injustice and death. And the problem is on the earth and the solution is on the throne. The problem is among us and the solution is with him. And that that breaks through all of the great book of Revelation. And so the central imagery for the last book of the entire Bible is the central imagery for all of eternity, that being a throne. Now in that day, some of you may know, people didn't sit in chairs and they did not seat themselves upon glorious thrones. In that Eastern culture, they would sit on the floor and they would recline oftentimes on pillows. And what they would use for a dining table would be more akin to what you would use as a coffee table. People didn't generally sit, particularly on thrones. There were, however, four exceptions. Number one, a king sits on a throne. We still use this imagery to this day, amen? This is why you men, in your house, there's a throne, amen? There's the king, he's got a lever and his feet go out, right? This is why probably at your dinner table, there is one chair for dad. That's dad's chair. 
A king sits on a throne and from the throne, the king rules and he reigns and he gives decrees and he exercises authority and everyone obeys him. And the king does not need to get up and make people obey him. He just sits and he rules through his word. And Jesus is the king of kings who sits on his heavenly throne and he rules over all creation and he brings everything into obedience through the authority of his word. The second type of person that would sit on the throne would be the priests. And they would mediate between the holy God in heaven and the sinful people on the earth. And Jesus is our great high priest. Our God became a man to reconcile men and women to God. Jesus serves alone as our great high priest. And the fact that he is seated on his throne means that his priestly work is concluded. He has already sacrificed himself for our sin. When he said it was finished, his work was done. And now he has returned to his place of rest and glory as our great high priest. Thirdly, in the ancient world, it would be a judge who would sit on a throne. And you would pass before the judge on their throne and they would render a verdict regarding your guilt or your innocence. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. And my dear friends, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. You will die and give an account and it will not be to a mirror. It will be to one seated upon a throne. He is the judge. He determines holy and unholy. He determines obedience and disobedience. He determines heaven and hell. And he is seated as the judge of all. Fourthly, after a great battle and victory, the conquering warrior general would return to the kingdom and he would take his seat upon a throne And a holiday would be called and the citizens would gather and they would praise and cheer and glorify and honor and thank that courageous veteran for venturing into battle and sacrificing their own life to protect the well-being of the citizens. Make no mistake, Jesus is our warrior king. He has conquered Satan, sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God. And he sits on his throne today as a triumphant warrior king. Do you know this king? Do you love this king? Do you believe in this king? Sometimes we focus on worship, which is the theme of our weak together. Worship is what naturally happens when we understand who's on the throne. The natural response, because we were made to worship, is to worship him. One of the reasons that we worship the Lord Jesus is because Jesus got off his throne. The story continues to Revelation 5. I can't cover all of it, but we'll hit a few highlights. Revelation 5, three through six, there was a crisis. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began, he says, to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Here's the point. There are things that only Jesus can do. 
In this scene, there are angels, but there are things that angels cannot do. There are God's people and leaders, but there are things that God's people and leaders cannot do. There are things that only Jesus can do. Only Jesus can forgive sin. Only Jesus can grant a new nature. Only Jesus can send you the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can rise you from death. Only Jesus can give you eternal life. There are things that only Jesus can do. And the whole earth as it was in all of heaven weeps because certain things need to be done and only Jesus can do them. The story continues. And one of the elders, that's one of the spiritual leaders said to me, weep no more. Here's the good news. I need you to know that Christianity is not just true news, it's good news. It is true news, but it's truly good news. Weep no more, here's the good news. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, there's kingly language, has conquered, there's the warrior language. All of the imagery and symbolism regarding the throne comes out here simultaneously. Has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne, there it is again, and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here Jesus is called the lion and the lamb. And he is both. Some of you like to see Jesus as lamb, humble, meek, mild, marginalized, poor, outcast, Galilean, peasant. Some of you prefer to see Jesus as lion, ruling, reigning, in authority, literally the king of the proverbial jungle, the, the head of all. It's amazing, this imagery is so fantastic and perfect that people still take money out of their pockets, put their kids in the car and drive to the movie theater to see who? To see Aslan. That story still resonates of a humble, loving, sacrificial lion who is a king. Jesus here is revealed as both lion and lamb. Jesus in eternity past, as Isaiah saw him, was as lion in full strength and full glory and full authority. And what the lamb did is he got off his throne and he humbled himself and he entered into human history with the meekness of a lamb. He went from a throne to a manger. He went from hearing, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Four throne truths. Number one, the center of history and eternity is the throne of Jesus. The center of history and eternity is the throne of Jesus. Dear friend, it's not you, it's not me, it's not us. It's not our nation, it's not our race, it's not our 
place in history. History has a center and that center is a throne and, and it belongs to Jesus alone. And all glory and praise and worship and adoration and honor proceeds to the throne. That's the trajectory of the whole book of Revelation. And all judgment and authority and dominion and rule proceeds from the throne throughout the rest of creation. You need to know that you are not the center of the world. You are not the center of history. You are not the center of eternity. You're not even the center of your own life. So long as you don't understand that, you will be miserable because glory literally means weightiness or heaviness. You and I were not made to, to bear such glory and it crushes us. It crushes leaders, it crushes politicians, it crushes athletes. They cannot live bearing the weight of glory and being worshiped by others. The only way to unburden ourselves and to live freely is to live in worship of the one who alone sits on the throne and is worthy of the glory and can carry the burden of the weight. Point number two, how many thrones are there? There's one. There's not a throne for men and a throne for women and a throne for gays and a throne for straights and a, a throne for the rich and a throne for the poor and a throne for the Muslims and a throne for the Christians. There's not a throne for the young and a throne for the old. There's one throne for everybody. There is one throne for everybody. Point number three, there's only one seated on the throne. Who is that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ the lion who came as a lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's only Jesus on that throne. Buddha does not sit on that throne. Krishna does not sit on that throne. Muhammad does not sit on that throne. All of those mere men, they passed before the throne. They gave an account to the throne. They were judged and sentenced at that throne. Jesus does not share his throne with anyone. And before it will proceed everyone. Point number four. Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming again. We don't know when, but we know for sure that just as he got off his throne to enter into history as the lamb, he will once again get off his throne and enter into history as the lion. And all of the sin and all of the folly and all of the rebellion and all of the disobedience that is present on the earth will come to an end. We will have no more elections. We will have no more politicians. We have nothing to vote for because when Jesus returns and sets up his eternal throne on the new earth, he will rule and reign. There will be nothing to vote for. There'll be one benevolent, loving, gracious, just, forgiving, holy, King of kings, Lord of lords, great high priest, victorious, triumphant warrior. It is going to be a glorious day. And so what is happening in heaven will enter into the earth. And it visits upon occasion when God's people gather together to pray and to sing. Point number four, 
Point number three, rather. Jesus hears our prayers from his throne. Here's what he says in chapter five, verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders, the leaders, they what? They fell down. They fell down before the throne. See, in heaven, there won't be a need for seating. Because we'll all be bowing. Do you believe that Jesus is worthy of bending the knee and bowing the head to you? The truth is, if you don't worship Jesus, you worship someone. And only Jesus is worthy of worship. Amen. Holding a harp, here comes the band. Here comes the band. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. If you struggle with prayer, it's because you struggle to understand who Jesus is right now in this very moment. Some of you think of Jesus solely as lamb. You pray to Jesus, but you think he's, he's a poor, humble, single, marginalized, beaten, arrested, falsely accused, Galilean peasant. If you and I were to see Jesus right now, we would see him as Isaiah saw him. We would see him as John saw him. We would see him not in humility, but in glory not as lamb, but as lion. We would see that an entire angelic army is at his disposal to execute his orders at his command. We would see that no one has authority that is even comparable to his. We would see that from that throne, he could hear every prayer, he could heal any disease, he could deliver any circumstance that there is nothing too hard for this Jesus. There is no one beyond the reach of this Jesus. And when you pray, you pray to him. And what we just saw is that your prayers are collected in his presence. How many of you ladies light candles in your home? Okay, why do you light candles? Because there's a man there and the candle helps to change the odor in the home, amen? <laughs> So when you light a candle, what happens is the, the aroma, it rises up. Next time you light a candle, remind yourself, that's what prayer is to Jesus. When I pray, my prayer goes up to him. It's a fragrance in his nostrils. It's a sweet smell. He loves your prayers. He loves our prayers so much, he collects them. 
so that he could hear them all, so that he could savor them all, so that he could answer them all. And there's sweetness in his presence. When we pray to the Lord Jesus, we are giving our request to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has no limit to his authority, his ability, his capacity, and loves us. And seated upon his throne, receives our prayers. I need you to know that when we sing, it is a form of praying. In the Psalms, praying and praising are essentially synonymous. When you sing, it doesn't go to the ceiling, it goes to the throne. When you pray, it doesn't go to the roof, it goes to the throne. Do you struggle living apart from the presence of God? Are there times that feel Trouble is near and God is far. The Bible says he will never leave me nor forsake me, but it feels like he has abandoned me. The way to enjoy the presence is by praying. That's exactly what's happening here. The people on earth, their prayers ascend into the presence of Jesus. And as a result, they're enjoying the presence of God in and through this prayerful relationship with their Lord. Some of you, you, you need to understand that when you pray, this is the Jesus whom you are talking to. This is where your prayers and praises are going. This is how he is experiencing it. And he loves you. And he hears you. And he answers you because he cares for you. Number four, Jesus saves us from his throne. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. It's good to sing new songs because God sometimes is doing new things. And the old songs are to celebrate the old things and the new songs are to celebrate the new things that God is doing. They sang a new song. So, so around the throne, there's worship. There's singing, there's celebration, there's adoration. And they are saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. Some of you might think, and I just feel compelled to answer this objection. Why would I give all my glory to Jesus? Because who else has died for you? Who else has taken you as enemy and made you friend? Who has taken your rebellion, your folly, your sin, and your shame, poured it out on themselves to suffer and die in your place so that you could take their place of love, blessing, and forgiveness? Who else would take your separation and replace it for reconciliation? Take your guilt and replace it with forgiveness. Take your death and exchange it for life. Take your unholiness and exchange it for holiness. Take your old nature and replace it with a new nature. The truth is when we go to sporting events, we are worshipers. We get in our car, we drive a long distance, we pay a significant amount of money, we sit there until we see someone do something glorious and then we all leap out of our chair and sing their praises. And if we will do that for athletes, we must do that for the resurrected, ruling, reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords.
They sang a new thought song, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From what tribe? Every tribe. God's the first one who's into diversity and multiculturalism and racial reconciliation. And language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests of God and they shall reign on the earth. One of the accusations against Christianity is that the religion that we adhere to is too exclusive. And the modern prevailing ideology is Christianity should be more inclusive. Well, the truth is that Christianity is simultaneously the most inclusive and exclusive. Inclusive meaning who's invited to turn from sin and trust in Jesus? Everybody, everybody. Many religions, their God is for their kind for their region, for their people, for their race, for their family, for their history. Jesus as ruling and reigning from the throne, he rules over all creation. He rules over all nations, all languages, all tribes and all tongues. And he invites everyone everywhere to turn from sin and trust in him. So in that regard, Christianity is the most inclusive of all. Everyone's welcome to come to the Lord Jesus, including you. And Christianity is exclusive. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. When the Bible speaks of salvation as a narrow road and a narrow door, it is exclusive. There is no salvation apart from Jesus. There's no forgiveness of sin apart from Jesus. There's no eternal life apart from Jesus. All people in all times, in all places, in all nations, in all languages, in all backgrounds, in all persuasions are all welcome to worship one seated on one throne. The invitation is inclusive. The path to salvation is exclusive. Lastly, Jesus will be worshiped forever around his throne. Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Then I looked, John keeps seeing all of this. And I heard around the what? There it is again. When you get in your car to drive home, I want you to remember, my God sits on a throne. When you go home and you sit in your chair, I want you to remember, my God sits on a throne. When you get up and go to work tomorrow and you sit at your desk, I want you to remember, my God sits on a throne. Every time we seat ourselves, we should remind ourselves of the one who is seated forever in glory. He mentions the throne again, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, they're praying, they're praising, they're singing, they're rejoicing, they're worshiping. We're in this season of politics where people come together and they stand in the presence of one person and they cheer for them and they chant for them and they adore them and they 
they give them money and they give them affection, they give them adoration. What they're saying is, you be my king. Remove sin and death and the curse and bring justice and prosperity and take care of me and take care of us and make it all go away and make it all go better. There's only one king who can do that. He alone is worthy of such a great event of so much praise and adoration. Here's what they say in a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Here's my question. Do you earnestly, honestly, personally, deeply believe that Jesus is worthy of your worship? That's the question. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He died in your place for your sins to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He continues, and I heard every creature. This is amazing. See, the Bible tells us that there is creator and creation. Pantheism, panentheism, paganism, Eastern religion, they have as their symbol a circle. So in the Lion King, it's the circle of life. In Native American shamanism, it's the prayer circle. In witchcraft, it's the circle of the coven. In Eastern religion, it's the yin and the yang in a circle. They don't believe that there is two circles, creator in one and creation in the other. The result is that they worship, but they worship creation rather than creator. This is exactly what Romans 1 says is the problem in all of human history. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator God who is to be forever praised, amen. You don't have an alcohol problem. You have a worship problem. You worship a created thing called alcohol. You do not have a porn problem. You have a worship problem where you worship the human body and its passions and pleasures. You do not have an anger problem. You have a worship problem where you want to sit on a throne and rule and reign. And if anyone should not follow your sovereign decrees, then you will send wrath from your throne. You do not have an eating problem. You have a worship of food problem and the fridge is a temple to which you venture frequently. Some of you'd look at me and say, Mark, you've made that journey. Oh, I, I have a one-way ticket to the fridge. Yes, sir. My point is this. Worship is what gets us in trouble and worship is what gets us out of trouble. We are too easily pleased on our journey to the king's throne and we'll settle along the way for various temptations and sins, created things rather than the creator God. And here what we see is all creation worshiping creator, including the animals. Some of you love watching those kids shows where the animals sing and dance. You just wait. Wait till you get to the kingdom. I heard every creature in heaven, that'd be the angels, on earth, beasts of the field, birds of the air, under the earth, the fish in the sea, they're all singing. And all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the what? 
thrown into the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And what did they do? They all fell down. This is what happens not when you force yourself by will, this is where you are compelled by glory. See, sometimes a soldier will make another soldier kneel. A police officer will make a criminal kneel. Our Lord Jesus does not make us bow. When we see him on his throne, when we see him in all glory, when our faith becomes sight, this is not what we have to do. This is what we get to do because this is what we were made to do. And when God is most glorified, we're most satisfied. This is reality right now. Right now, the Lord Jesus is sitting on his throne right now. Right now, the elders, the leaders are on their face. Right now, the created beings are singing their creator's praise. Right now, the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Do you know who's there? Isaiah. He's there. Do you know who's there? John. He's there. Do you know where we're going? There. Do you know that if we will stop right now to pray and praise, that we will join them and Jesus will hear our prayers and Jesus will receive our worship and we'll be harmonizing right now in the presence of Jesus with the angels. Father God, thank you so much for the scriptures. Lord, without revelation, we would be left with speculation. We'd be left with philosophy and religion and conjecture and guesses and hopes and dreams and fears, but no certainty and no truth and no revelation. Lord God, I thank you so much that you gave Isaiah the opportunity to see the Lord Jesus in glory. I thank you so much that you gave John the opportunity to see his best friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, in glory. I thank you that that throne is occupied, that who rules and reigns is settled. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are such a great, great lion, ruling and reigning with regal authority. I thank you that you are such a humble lamb who would leave your throne, to enter into human history, to be among us and to be one of us, to live without sin and to die and to rise for us and to go ahead and to prepare a place for us. Lord God, as we come into a sacred moment, I invite you, Holy Spirit, as John was in the spirit, I pray that we would be in the spirit. 
that you would give us a fuller understanding and appreciation of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is right now, as he will be forevermore, high and exalted and seated on a throne and worthy of worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that we have the great privilege and honor of being invited to your throne forever. And Lord Jesus, if there are any here that do not yet know you, I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would bring them new life, that you would give them a new nature and a new love for Jesus. Holy Spirit, you have spent eternity glorifying the Son and the Father in worship and adoration. We ask you to fill us right now, to teach us, to help us, to pray and to praise and to glorify the one who sits on the throne. And we ask for this grace in Jesus' good name. Amen.